Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend. Coming up, Linda Holmes tells us about her new book, Flying Solo. I have wondered whether there was a way to rethink what a happy or at least optimistic ending for a a character and a relationship might look like. Plus, Rutherford Falls is back for a second season. I'll talk with actor Michael Grayeyes about what makes the show so great. When I look at the show, I see families. I see indigenous families really beautifully wrought and written about. But first, it's our chance to unwind from the week with two excellent humans. With us this week, we have Jacoby Cochran. He's the host of the CityCast Chicago podcast. Jacoby, hello. Jacoby, you're muted. Oh, my bad. I'm going to take on one time. <laughs> I had the biggest uh, like response, which is like, oh, my God, thank you. <laughs> uh, but I appreciate you having me back on the show. God, what a great start. Also, here is the wonderful Jonklin Hill. She is a senior producer at Vox. JQ, welcome back. Thank you. It's so good to be back. Oh, I'm so glad you're not muted. What a wonderful beginning to this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Lizzo dropped a new single last week. It's for her album Special, which comes out in about a month. The single is called Girls. That's with like a lot of R's and no I. Um, it's, you know, it got a lot of pretty immediate feedback about the fact that The lyrics include an ableist slur. This is a word that's based on spastic diplegia, which is a form of cerebral palsy. Um, A lot of people called her out about it pretty quickly. And I found it really fascinating because, you know, obviously Lizzo, she's in a huge position of power at this point. She had a lot of different options for how she could respond to this criticism. Um, But she apologized and reissued the song with new lyrics that didn't have that word. And I don't know, I just found this so refreshing and exciting. And I was curious what y'all thought too. JQ, like, is this what accountability should look like? Yeah, I think the fact that she reacted the way she did sort of made it a non-story. Well, it it made it a non-story for her as a celebrity in like the conversations we have about mm, holding people accountable when it comes to their art. I there's another conversation sort of around like African American vernacular English Mm -hmm. that I think it sparked, which is really interesting um, because some people are saying, oh, this word is A-A-V-E. And granted, I'm not a linguist. um, And a lot of times when I yes, there are words that are A-A-V-E, but I often think of like the grammatical structure Mm -hmm. when I'm thinking of that. Um, But I don't know. It was really interesting. And I was really glad that at least my corner of the internet the conversation was being had and led by um black people with disabilities Mm -hmm. I, i was like okay this is the intersection of people that i really want to hear from 
on this. And I think it also kind of highlighted like, oh, there are words we use all the time that have roots in different places that we never Mm -hmm. really think about. Um, And I get when people are like, well, what's, I don't, this is different. This is, but I don't know. It's just like, it's good that people, we now have these forms where people can communicate and say like, hey, this is actually harmful. And this is its history. And this is how it makes me feel. So I don't, and it feels like a short cycle for this issue too, Mm -hmm. which I appreciate. It's not becoming long and drawn out because of her doubling down. So yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. Well, and I think to your point too, like it's, you know, it's maybe a word that a lot of us wouldn't have considered to be particularly uh, problematic because we have the privilege of not having to think about it in our Mm -hmm. daily lives, right? I think it's important that not only did Lizzo show accountability, you know, apologize, but I I do appreciate that she was able to navigate the anti-blackness that ended up coming out in this conversation Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. on the corner of the internet, when I saw this topic, it was really being led by U.S. and European white individuals who live with disabilities. And while I don't, don't think that in itself, you know, kind of discounts their opinion. But you did see a lot of uh, sort of anti-black rhetoric coming out. And and I don't think we need to, you know, call a person out by simultaneously putting them down. Um, in some yeah. cases, you should. I think in some cases, you should actively, <laughs> actively put people down. You should bury them. Bullying um, works. Bullying works. Right. But, you know, and I don't want to sound ridiculous here, but as a communication professor, I'm constantly stressing for my students shared meaning. And so for people who say, you know, it's a part of African-American vernacular English, you know, that doesn't keep it from being ableist. It does mean that right. th- there's an opportunity to learn here because often when it is used, uh, I will say I have seen people use it in a way that that does speak particularly to people uh, that is meant to be demeaning. Uh, But Mm -hmm. I I have also seen it used as an action word to mean, you know, uh, like doing something great. With that being said, again, language is about shared meaning. And so there were people who said, oh, I've never heard this before. This has never come up. And I, and I would argue for you to just maybe take a pause and remind yourself just because you haven't seen it doesn't mean that these arguments, uh, these concerns haven't been brought up before. Often what it means is that those who are lobbying for the change are not empowered enough or are not being listened to enough to have their concerns heard. And, and if anyone is going to say, oh, you capitulated to cancel culture, I, I'm going to be real. I, that's not a person I'm trying to have as a fan because cancel culture mm-hmm. ain't even real. And right. so so you believe believing in fantasies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the fact, you know, as you said, Jonklin, the fact that she didn't double down, right? Because it's so easy to picture someone getting really defensive around like, oh, I had no idea. Like, this is part of my own vernacular. Like, I wasn't, you know, but to just be like, you know what? I hear y'all. I'm going to I'm going to make this change. Like, to me, that's not capitulating. That's like the ideal version of someone in a really public point of view being able to say, you know what? I made a mistake. I learned something today. And I'm going to do my best to to fix what I did because of that. You know, like, doesn't everyone win in that situation? Yeah, it's really it really is a good public example of the idea of intent versus impact. Yes. Like, I mean, think of your friends like you could say something to them and not mean to hurt them. But if it hurt their feelings... Right. Typically, you want to make amends because that's your friend and you don't want them to feel bad. And it's like, oh, okay, maybe this is something that should extend to all of humanity. Yeah, that sounds great. I love that for all of us.
So also this week, the Tonys happened. Uh, Chicago's own Jennifer Hudson is now the youngest ever EGOT winner. She is 40. The EGOT, of course, being when you win an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. This really speaks to like extremely multi-talented people. There are actually fewer than 20 people in like the history of the EGOT who have won this. Um, Mm -hmm. Jacoby, no pressure. Does this make you rethink your own personal goals? (laughs) That's a really good question, and my answer is no, because uh, let's be real. Um, not all of us, most of us, will never be as talented as Jennifer Hudson. And, mm-hmm. and whether you look at that as a slight, whether you look at that as just like probability, you got to accept the reality for what it is. She went from being on American Idol in what, like 2004, to mm-hmm. being nominated and winning an Oscar by like 2006. Yeah. She's won Grammys for albums. She's she's been a producer. Uh, she's been behind the camera, in front of it. Uh, for me, it it just gives me another black icon uh, that that I feel overwhelmingly comfortable and proud to lift up. You know, Whoopi Goldberg, John Legend. That's a that's a pretty beautiful company to be in. But because it's such a you know, in some respects, a very superficial capitalist award oh God, on its own. Insider too, right? Right. I, I I I think it's easy to just be like, who the hell? Who cares? Who gives a damn? But like, it it is. It is overwhelmingly difficult to win any award at any level in anything, but to win like four of the most superficial capitalist insider <laughs> awards is is pretty cool. I mean, yeah, it's it's huge. And you know, I remember watching J Hud on American Idol, Simon <laughs> coming for her. I think you're out of your depth. You must be kidding. Uh, because, I, uh, well, because I think there are better singers and performers in this in the eleven people left. That's are what it serious? is. That's why you found it difficult to say anything. And look, she has an egot, and I don't believe that he does. So I, <laughs> I love that for her. <laughs> So, JQ, when I asked Jacoby about personal goals, obviously I was being a little facetious. Like, I think it's <laughs> it's too late for all of us to get any of those awards at this juncture. Hey, I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. Don't, don't. Uh, <laughs> hey, 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 hey. I ain't going to win no Grammy or nothing, but like, you know, uh, I might sneak up on a TV show and, 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 still on the table. and, and, and flex these chops. I'm going to just okay, say. There you, okay. I don't want to rule <laughs> anything out, but I don't know, JQ. I mean, like, is there, I, I totally understand celebrating the accomplishments of this extremely accomplished person but i wonder like is there a part of your brain that's sort of like oh shit i really need to like get moving a little bit here (laughs) i mean yeah i think especially i think your late 20s early 30s are especially a time where you start where it's very easy to compare yourself and be like wait am Mm -hmm. i doing what i'm supposed to be doing um and i think I don't know. I think the key is to take like the little victories. Like, I don't know, make your own personal daily EGOT. Maybe mm-hmm. your daily EGOT is like, I got up, I made my bed, I drank a glass of water, I had breakfast. Um, and you know, we did it. Like so, you know. Or oh like God. maybe it's I don't know, my own EGOT, it's like hair's done and nails done. Wow, we did it. <laughs> oh, I love that idea. So it's the EGOT in your heart. Jacoby, what would mm-hmm. yours be? Uh, I honestly, I started thinking about what a daily ego could be, and I was like, mm-hmm. eat, uh, <laughs> get up out of bed, 
Is that the G and the O or just the G? No, that's just get up, open okay. the open the curtains, get some sunshine in there, and take your ass a shower. Right? Ooh, I like that. That's I work. Good, yep. I work from the crib specifically from the closet, and so you know, I, I definitely take care of myself. But there's no need for me to be getting getting dressed. I could avoid the sunshine for a few hours. So before I let you two go, our next segment is with Linda Holmes, who hosts Pop Culture Happy Hour. She has a new book out. It's kind of a celebration of living alone. And so I know, Jacoby, you do not live alone, but JQ, you do. Uh, so do I. I. What's your favorite thing about it? Oh, man. Okay. I'm an only child. So I think mm. I was predisposed to enjoying living alone. My favorite part is like no one touching my stuff. Like <laughs> if I lose something, okay, it was my fault. Like yeah. I, that would always drive me crazy about sleepovers. And my mom was like, you have to let the other kids play with your stuff. Cause they would pick up stuff and not put it back. And I'm just yeah, like, so mm, that's not doing? how that goes. And when you live by yourself, you can be like, oh, wow. Look at this beautiful place where no one touches the stuff, but me. <laughs> Well, Jacoby, Jonklin, thank you both so much. This was very fun. Thanks for having me on. It was so fun. Thank you so much. I can't wait to the next one. Our next guest is Linda Holmes. She co-hosts the NPR show Pop Culture Happy Hour. And she's the author of two novels now. Her newest is called Flying Solo, and it's out now. It's about Lori. Her great aunt Dot just died, and she's come back to her main hometown to figure out what to do with the house and all of her stuff. It's a book about forging your own path and making your own rules and having a great time along the way. Linda, welcome back to Nerdette. Thank you, Greta. Good to talk to you again. So I enjoyed this book a lot. A funny thing happened after, you know, obviously having read your first book, Evie Drake Starts Over, where I was like, Linda, I could have used more baseball in this story. <laughs> yeah, there is there is a, only a small amount of baseball in this There is a little story. bit. Yep, just a little bit. But yeah, yeah, part of me was like, wait, we're not going to go to a game or anything? No, <laughs> it's true. This one this one does not have, you know, it has a couple a uh, couple little team updates. But yeah, I did I did go a different direction with this one. It's really fun, though. I loved it. So as I mentioned, this book is about Lori. She's about to turn 40. She's cleaning out this house of her great aunt Dot because Dot never got married and didn't have kids of her own. So Lori kind of like fell on Lori to do it. Um, I feel like this book is very much about celebrating an independent life. This isn't like, oh, woe is Dot the spinster. No, definitely not. And I really love the idea that there shouldn't just be like a one size fits all idea, especially of like a romantic relationship. And I was just curious about, you know, sort of how you've worked through that in your own life and why you wanted to write about it in this book. You know, the funny thing is, if you write about people who are married and you're married, people don't necessarily assume that you're writing about your own feelings about being married. Mm. Um, but if you're sort of long-term single, as I have been, and you write about somebody who's kind of a long-term single, um, it, it you wind up trying to kind of explain, like, this is about me. It's not about me. This happens not to right. be about me. I have actually very little in common with her in terms of history. Um, hmm. I think what happened is... For a long time, I have wondered whether there was a way to rethink what a what a happy or at least optimistic ending for a, a character and a relationship might look like. Whether, you know, is it possible for that to not necessarily include 
you know, you get married, you have babies, you buy a house, you do kind of this um, very particular dance, which, look, lots of people in the world don't do that, never assume they would do that. Um, right. You know, it's not it's not something that um, that everybody assumes. But there is a lot of societal pressure for people to do at that. Least for, at least for a lot of people there is. I mean, I think I always try to be cognizant of the fact that you know, in some ways, if you feel pressure to have that life, in a lot of ways, it's a it's a luxury. It, it, you know, it's a privilege to have the option of doing that really simply sure. and to not have to be intentional about the structure of your family life unless you choose to be right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I did want it to be a little bit about within her particular situation as a you know, a person who's about to be 40, just canceled a wedding that she decided she didn't want to have. She is Mm kind of learning how to be intentional about um, what do I want that to look like? And what do I want? Not just the relationship, like what kind of person do I want it to be? What do I want my relationship with them to be like? I I do think the thing that reflects my own experience the most is that I got to the point probably when I was probably in my 40s, where I kind of felt like it would be really fun to, to meet somebody, but it's really overwhelming to me to think about living with another person full time mm-hmm. <laughs> just I because I'm very set in my in my ways and I am very accustomed to living by myself. So I think it's sort of about trying to figure out what might your life look like and and what are the what are the different choices that that are ahead of you um, when you're trying to figure that out. Well, and there's this really great analogy in the book about Legos, which I love just because, you know, the idea, too, is that, like, the older you get, the more you have built a life for yourself. Yeah. And so figuring out how to combine that with someone else who is probably ideally, right, built a life for themselves, too, like, that gets really complicated. Yeah. The the comparison in the book is to, you know, when you first start to build a Lego, let's say you're starting out to build a firehouse out of Lego. And Mm -hmm. it's just going to look like a basic building when you first start building it. And along the way, you can decide that you want to turn it into something else. And it becomes pretty simple to turn it into something else. Um, But if you've built it already, and then you decide that you want to either turn it into something else or merge it with something else to create a whole new thing, you know, there's more kind of taking apart that has to happen. And that's not necessarily bad. It's just different. So in some ways, the, the process of... Um, being a, a person who's kind of built a whole life for yourself for, you know, 25 years of adulthood or something like that is a, is a little bit different from being, you know, a, a few years into your kind of into what you would consider to be your adulthood and joining up with somebody from there. You only get to go through life one time. So it's, you know, there aren't a lot of people who can kind of explain what both of those things are like. But I do think they work a little bit different. Mm hmm. So in, in Evie Drake, you it seemed like you were pretty careful to not mention what Evie's body looked like. Mm-hmm. And it's something you and I talked about when I had you on the show. In Flying yeah. Solo, you're pretty specific about what Lori looks like. You know she's a size 18. Uh, there's a point where she talks about how an ex called her sturdy. Yeah. Um, why be so intentional about that with this one? You know, I'm always trying to write the book that I want to read and that I yeah. have always wanted to read. And I've been so influenced by writers who are inclusive about size, you know, sometimes in a way where they talk about it a lot. 
And sometimes right. in a way where they don't talk about it a lot. They just mention it and you know it, mm -hmm. but it's not a big um, story point. And so I don't know that I had a really specific reason, except that this particular character, um, it just occurred to me that maybe that would be an element of her kind of, I don't know, of, of who she was. But it's not, um, I, I think it would be very easy to read the book and not really notice that, honestly. Totally. I think it was just because, you know, having read Evie and noticing that. Yeah. That one, I, was, I was just curious about it. But yeah, I mean, it's also nice to not have it be like a trauma plot point you know oh it's yeah like, no. woe is me or you know it's no. just like yeah here we are and this she's is got what it is. you know she's a she's a um she's a sort of a nature journalist so she's very outdoorsy she does a lot of um you know hikes and she gets out in the in the outdoors to kind of do the reporting that she does about animals and birds and bugs and stuff like that um <laughs> And I think it just appealed to me to kind of bring some of those elements together. And, you know, an 18 is is not not terribly, not terribly above average, oh, yeah, not no. that far above right. average. Um, uh -uh. So it's just a it's just a thing that I put in as a, a little a little bit of, um, you know, intentional, I think, inclusivity. For sure. What was it like to write this during the pandemic? I It's just interesting to think about, you know, our, our main, main character, Lori and Dot are both like they live alone and they are both really fulfilled by that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think especially for me as a person who also lives alone and generally is very fulfilled by that, I imagine you feel the same way. Like, I think especially during the pandemic, though, like it could be really isolating. It yeah. could be really hard. Yeah. I mean, my reaction to the time I spent completely by myself during the pandemic was this is how I know that in my normal life, even though I live by myself and spend a lot of time by myself, I'm not lonely because now I'm lonely. <laughs> But I think the biggest influence that the pandemic had on the book in some ways is that it wound up being a kind of a um, parts of it are a reflection on um, independence and interdependence and, you know, the ways in which people rely on each other in, you know, ways that really vary. And that includes people mm -hmm. who... You live with, you live near, you don't live with, you don't live near. That's kind of the biggest effect that the pandemic had on the writing of the book. There's a really nice amount of vulnerability from a variety of different characters in a variety of different relationships, which was really nice to see, I think, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I think with the books that I've written, they will have a, a love story, a romantic story, but also just as much family stories and um, mm. good friendship stories because, um, you know, I, my favorite books are the ones where people have more than one thing going on in their life at the same time. And so um, those things are, you know, those things are important. Totally. What's your favorite thing about living alone? My favorite thing about living alone? It is probably getting up and going to bed whenever I want without anyone asking me anything about it. Um <laughs> You know, that sometimes, you know, if I, if my eyes fly open at 4.30 in the morning um, and I want to get up and read a book for an hour and then fall back to sleep and sleep until nine, that's, you know, that doesn't, there's nobody who would even ask me about it. And honestly, like, there are plenty of people who live with other people who are saying right now, I would do these things too. Sure. Um, but sure. I think not having conversations about day-to-day -day choices 
is probably legitimately the thing that I that I like the most is not discussing or or negotiating day to day decision making. Because, yeah, you can do whatever you want. I mean, it's it's true. And it, it's true, even though also I have to do everything right. Right. Yes. Also, true. <laughs> it's always me. Right. Like, <laughs> you know, like who's responsible uh, for the dishes? Oh, that's me. Yeah. Oh, who's responsible for paying the taxes? Yeah. Oh, that's also me. Who's got to call the doctor about the dogs? Whatever. Oh, that's yeah, that's me. Man, we got to put these dogs to work. It's true. It's true. So there is like, there's less, there's just generally less negotiation. And I don't know how that sounds. Maybe it sounds terrible, but I, you know, that's, that's probably the thing that I like the most about it specifically. No, I get that. And I like it a lot. And I totally relate. So yay. Yay. <laughs> well, Linda, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. After the break, the Peacock show Rutherford Falls is back for a second season. So we're going to listen back to a delightful interview with actor Michael Grayeyes. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. The second season of A Truly Delightful Show is out this week. So up next, we are going to listen back to a conversation I had with one of the show's stars last year. His name is Michael Grayeyes, and he also happens to be one of my favorite interviews. The show is called Rutherford Falls. It's on Peacock, and it's from creator Mike Schur, who's behind Parks and Rec and The Good Place and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Here is what the show is about. Ed Helms plays Nathan Rutherford, who's the ancestor of the guy who founded this town, Rutherford Falls. It's on native land. And his best friend is Regan, who's played by Janice Meeting, and she is a member of the fictional Minnetonka Nation. She works for Terry Thomas, who owns the casino in town, and Terry is played by Michael Grayeyes. He is Plains Cree. All right, that's all you need to know. Let's take a listen. Hi there. Hi, Greta. Oh, I'm so excited to have you. So um, obviously those were just like the barest of plot points that I just gave. I think the show does a lot. It speaks to a lot of conversations that people are having around reckonings with legacies and identities. I think it's also largely about friendship and community and ambition. I'm curious what stood out to you when you first heard about it. Uh, to me, this is a really beautiful examination of the ground that we stand on. It's, uh, to me, it's an examination of like why people are the way they are. The characters in the story are all shaped by history in some way. And we come to each other in this moment and we are, however you would describe it, we are products, we are victims, you know, we are uh, manifestations of, of all these complex histories. And we just come into intersection with each other and we have to like deal with all of it like we do in real life. Yeah. 
So, as I mentioned, you're an indigenous actor. Um, I've read half the writer's room on this show is also made up of indigenous people. That is not the norm. How much do you think that changed what this show could do? Um, yeah, that's that's not the norm. It's far from it. So by having numerous indigenous voices from different nations from all over Turtle Island, what the show is able to do is uh, tackle the notion that we are that we are monolithic in any way. Haudenosaunee people are very different than than Seminole people, which are, who are quite different than Blackfeet. You know, so when mm-hmm. I look at the show, I see families, I see indigenous families, really beautifully wrought and written about. And so for me, that's the benefit of having numerous writers is that we can create community. I feel like the jokes are also just really good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The um, Sierra is a genius, you know, like I tell her that and she likes one she, of the showrunners. Yes. Yeah. Our showrunner. And she, um, she, you know, she, she poo-poos me. She goes, no, 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 no. We're, we're just working. We're worker bees. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's the, it's the intelligence. Like this is a smart show, a really, really smart show. Like I think, I think humor is awareness, but this show always surprises me with how deep it is. Yeah. I want to listen to a clip that I think speaks to exactly what you're talking about. This is one of the funniest scenes of the show. I thought it's at a public event that the mayor is hosting. She's the town's first black mayor. She's played by Dana L. Wilson. She's a great character. So your character and the mayor have a lot of pretty hilarious and I think super nuanced power struggles. And you can really see it in this scene. Uh, the mayor is holding court in front of this group of people. And Terry literally walks up. He has his own mic. He like pulls it out of his pocket and he starts talking in Mohawk. And there are just a couple of English words. And the mayor is completely confounded. And I just think it's hilarious. I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that we are currently standing on Minishanka land. Beautiful. Okay. What Gwanoaladu? I am was Zawadat Galide, Mayor Deirdre Chisenhall, Oni. I am was Aogonole G. Chisenhall. Yaganoa, Yungitnagonfla Tani, Nesagane, unfortunate genocide. Nekchi, Nyawenji Dizewe, De Gwaliwas Nyeze, Nekchi, Yamir Deirdre, Yoskats Kanigahawe. Your snowle on your salade. So frigid. <laughs> I mean, partly it's a bummer that you can't see her facial expressions just listening to the audio, because I think that's also partly what makes that scene mm-hmm. so great. But it I does. mean, that's hilarious. It's it's one of my favorite scenes um, for like very specific reasons. Um, you nailed it already. Is that Dana L. Wilson is a comedy goddess in that scene <laughs> her her sort of like first of all her surprise that i, I interrupt her speech with my own mm-hmm. mic is <laughs> really so beautiful and then her growing consternation <laughs> while at the same time you know putting on this smile like i'm the mayor and this is i knew we talked about this and this is what was going to happen and by the end her defeat like she sells every joke line so dana is a a hero in 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 the scene but the writing is so brilliant because there's only a few english words peppered into that whole speech and that's in mohawk Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. indigenous people all over turtle island don't know what we're saying 
only Mohawk speakers would know what I'm mm. saying. So even within our, like in a pan-Indigenous context, we're still, just like everybody else, going, I really want to know what he's saying. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I, th- I think he's trolling her publicly, like <laughs> right there. And, and so the entire idea for that joke is housed within an Indigenous ontology, meaning we are the joke writers, we are Indigenous, we're housing this entirely within our, um, our points of view, our worldview. Anybody outside of it is going to laugh because they're outside. And, and I realized when I, when I read that in, in, when we were working on this season, I was like, I've just not seen this. I've not seen a, a show so unapologetically claim their own space as the center of the narrative. And that's what they did with that, with that speech. I, I, I simply applaud that moment. It's it's actually uh, television history. Hmm. Oh, that's so cool. So you have had an extensive career in film and TV. You were in True Detective. You've played a number of historical indigenous men like Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse and Tecumseh. This is your first comedy role, right? Mm-hmm. I think partly what, what was such a treat. I mean, I think everyone on this show is incredible, but it seemed to me like you especially were having such a great time in that role. Um, best role of my career. You think so? Absolutely. Ugh. Absolutely. And it's because I've been really fortunate in the last, I'd probably say about five, six years uh, with the kind of writing that I've been given the kind of directors I've been working with, you know, the, prestige of the various projects but in no case um have i ever been asked to bring so much of myself to a role Mm -hmm. um i'm i think i'm funny you know my kids think i'm funny (laughs) my wife thinks i'm funny um (laughs) but people are stunned when they go you're hilarious you're Mm -hmm. like i just why haven't you done comedy before and i'm like uh because that's just the way the business works you know, because nobody wrote it for you. Because nobody wrote it for me, and nobody saw it that way. And I certainly don't look like I'm. You know, I'm. I'm. I look the way I look, and I play imposing men, and or broken men, and mm-hmm. I've loved playing those roles. But Terry isn't broken. He's mm-hmm. ambitious, and his life has cohesion, and he's happy, and he has a lot of joy in his life. Um, and I've not been asked to play. Um, joy often. Mm. Oh, that kind of breaks my heart. Well, you know what? It's like there. You know, we're, I'm I'm lucky. I have work. You know, like I'm all. You yeah, know, I'm, of I'm, course. You know, I'm a working course. actor. But um, I think uh, America is um, quite interesting. Well, they're simply consumed um, with. Uh, trauma. So I think there's a tradition of, uh, you know, whether it's cathartic or whatever it is, is that our communities have been perceived as tragic. Our, certainly our history is very complex with a lot of trauma. Uh, and I think people are comfortable in seeing us or understanding us that way. And Rutherford Falls denies those storytelling tropes again and again. It really does. 
That was the excellent Michael Gray Eyes. He plays Terry Thomas in Rutherford Falls. All episodes of season two are now on Peacock. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening along. We are always delighted to have you. Did you know we actually have a Facebook group that is a great place for Nerdette listeners to get to know each other and ask for book recommendations and talk about whatever they're into. It's a pretty sweet little corner of the internet. You can find it if you go to facebook.com slash groups slash Nerdette HQ, or you can just search for Nerdette headquarters on Facebook. The show is produced by me and Anna Bauman. Our newsletter is built by Maggie Sivet, and our executive producer is Brendan Banazak. All right, we'll see you next week. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.